You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. First Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12, we've been working our way through these books of the Bible. But let me ask you a question. Have you ever, have you ever messed up so severely? Have you ever sinned so egregiously? Have you ever rebelled so violently that you began to wonder if God would give up on you? Perhaps you feel that way today. Maybe here you quietly ask, fearful of actually vocalizing, but you're thinking it. Is God faithful even though I've been so faithless? Will he, will God be gracious to me yet again, even though just this last week I've spurned him repeatedly? Have I burned down the bridge of God's mercy, never to be crossed again? As we come to 1 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, we see that God's people have messed up. They have committed an egregious sin against the Lord. They have committed treason against their covenant king. And even though the Lord had delivered them out of Egypt and he had come to their rescue time and time again, they insisted, we want a king like all the nations. All the nations, we want to be like them. They no longer wanted the Lord to be their savior, but they wanted a king who would go out and fight their battles for them. They spurned God and God gave them up to the desires of their heart, giving them the king that they wanted, the king that they asked for, a young man named Saul, who was tall, who was handsome. And as we met Saul last week, we discerned that here's a man who is very outwardly impressive in his physical appearance, but he was a bumbling coward. After Saul is selected as king by lots, the start of Saul's reign at the end of the last chapter kind of begins on a fizzle, doesn't it? We know that the Philistines are encroaching with their garrison on the west of Israel. The spirit of Lord rushed upon Saul after his anointing, to lead a military charge against them, but rather than doing what his hand found to do, Saul did nothing. And around the same time Saul ascends the throne, we also find out that there's this growing threat of the Ammonites in the east. And so Israel is being pressed upon each side. And it's strange. Saul is selected as king, and what does he do? He goes back home to Gibeah. While some worthless fellows rejected Saul's kingship, their critique, as we will see in chapter 11, has some merit. How can this man save us? Israel's under a cack, and their new king that they wanted to go fight their battles for them goes home and does nothing. They wanted a king to save them, but where was their king? Who will be the one to save Israel? Let's read about the Ammonite crisis, starting in chapter 11, verse 1. Then Nahash, the Ammonite, went up 
and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, on this condition, I will make a treaty with you that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, give us seven days respite that that we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. Nahash, the Ammonite king, his name means serpent, snake. And this new era of Israel's history, Saul is a new sort of Adam, and his first test is to face a serpent. Would this new Adam crush his head? Nahash moved his forces and besieged a a town called Jabesh-Gilead, east of the Jordan River. And the people of Jabesh were, were, were hopeless before Nahash and his military strength. We see that they're quite quick to try to come up with some sort of treaty, some sort of alliance with Nahash. Jabesh is ready not just to have a king like all the nations, but a king from all the nations. But Nahash exhibits the sort of cruelty and oppression so often typified by sinful human rulers. Because he not only wants to rule Jabesh and force them to submit to his rule, but he wants to disgrace all of Israel in the process. So he says, sure, I'll make a treaty with you and you can become my vassals, my servants, with only one condition, that each of you gouges out your right eye. You see, he not only wants to defeat the town, but he wants to publicly shame all of Israel in the process. Now, why would he request they gouge out their right eye? That's strangely specific. Well, the military strategy of the day involved a soldier concealing the left eye behind his shield as the right eye peeked out from behind the shield in military advance. So without a right eye, he is crippling, he's handicapping the ability of Israel to fight back against him. They can't rebel against oppressors they can't see. So desperate and hopeless, Jabesh asked for seven days. Give us seven days to send for help before we subject ourselves to your brutality, brutality, Nahash. And Nahash kind of surprisingly agrees. And why is that? Well, simply because he's a cat having too much fun playing with an entrapped mouse. He doesn't expect anyone to come which shows you how little he thinks of Israel and its scattered and disorganized tribes. So Jabesh says, sure. Uh, So Nahash says, Jabesh, you can have your seven days. You can have your seven days, send out your messengers. And that's what they do. They send out messengers requesting help from someone, anyone, come and rescue us from our eyes getting plunged out. Notice here what Jabesh does not do. They do not call on the Lord. They give no indication in this text of calling out to the Lord for help. Perhaps it shows the spiritual decline of the people. They didn't even think to do it. But perhaps they thought that the bridge of God's deliverance had now been burned with their installation of a new king. By selecting a king, they say, God, we don't want you to save us. We want a king to save us. They didn't think to ask out to the Lord. But not only did they not 
call out to the Lord for help, they also did not send their request to their new king, Saul. In fact, nobody, as we'll see, even thinks to notify Saul about what's happening here. The, the critique of the worthless men concerning Saul echoes also in Jabesh. Can this man save us? So instead, what they do is they throw a last-ditch Hail Mary pass, so, sort of requests, sending messengers out, just hoping that anybody, someone, would come to their aid. Who do you call out to when the enemy threatens to scoop out your eyes and enslave you? Perhaps the, the threat against your life this morning is not quite as severe. At least I hope not. Come find me afterwards and we'll talk. But, but when trials come upon you, do you run to the Lord and his king for help? Or do you go to anyone else who will listen? We, we often go to everyone but the Lord when a crisis comes. But notice God's graciousness. The Lord hears the cries of his people, even when we fail to direct those cries to the Lord. And the Lord does not forsake his people. That even when we spurn him, even when we fail to call upon him, if we belong to the Lord, he is faithful and he is gracious to his people. For those who belong to the Lord, we can never burn down the bridges of his grace, no matter the intensity of our rebellion against him. Let's keep reading in verse four. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen and Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. The messengers eventually make their way to Gibeah, Saul's hometown. And as the people heard the news, they all start weeping aloud. They're distraught. Why? Well, because they feared the futures of their fellow kinsmen but also because they feared the armies of Nahash, who would soon be making his way across the Jordan River in an attack near them very soon. Today it's Jabesh, soon it will be all of Israel. And where is Saul in all of this? Well, the new king returned back to his country life, working behind a team of oxen in the field. And not only is Saul completely oblivious to why his entire hometown is crying, but he has to actually go and inquire the reason for why they are crying. Even in Saul's hometown, no one in all of Gibeah thought to even concern their new king or even notify him. Even in Saul's hometown, the echo of the worthless men reverberate. Can this man save us? And so far, we're inclined to agree. <laughs> How is Saul going to save Israel? They wanted a king to save them from their enemies, but here we have a clueless king who's unconcerned, who's passive, and who hasn't garnered the confidence of anyone in Israel at this point. But even though Saul is incapable to save, the Lord is capable of using incapable Saul as his chosen instrument for deliverance. The word of the Lord does not fail. The Lord told Saul through his prophet Samuel, chapter 10, verse 1, and you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you, Saul, will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. The Lord has chosen by his grace 
to use Saul to be the instrument of his salvation for his people. And the Lord, who is gracious and merciful, hears the cries of his people. And even though they do not seek him, they do not raise their voice in repentance towards him, the Lord nevertheless chooses a deliverer to rescue them. Everything changes in verse 6. Look at what the text says. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. After Saul was anointed king, you might remember last time that the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And this rushing of the spirit is the, the, was the getting of God's supernatural strength to his chosen leader to lead the people to military victory. The spirit of the Lord rushed upon Saul outside that garrison of the Philistines, and he did nothing. But the second rushing is different. It comes and it ignites within him a wave of righteous anger of divine anger. Saul becomes a sort of super judge here in our passage, a better Samson who expresses the power and the wrath of Yahweh. And what happens next is eerily, eerily calls back to the darkest days of Israel during the time of the judges. But in those days, there was no king in Israel. What happens now that there is a king? Let's keep reading. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, the men of Judah, 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day, Saul put the people in three companies and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Thankfully, Saul only had his oxen nearby and not his precious donkeys. Filled with righteous rage, he takes those oxen and he dismembers them. He cuts them into pieces and he sends them out as the rallying cry for all of Israel demanding that the people assemble together as one man and fight. Now the whole scene echoes the end of the book of Judges. Where we get and what contains the most vivid description of human depravity, I think, in all of the Bible. But those horrible chapters at the end of Judges are actually worth rehearsing help us better understand the significance of Saul's victory. In Judges 19, men from Gibeah, Saul's hometown, become like the city of Sodom. The men of Gibeah, also called worthless fellows in Judges, attempt to gang rape a Levite man visiting the town. And to satisfy the carnal lust of the men, they seize the Levite's concubine, they abuse her, they have their way with her, and they leave her corpse at the front door after a night of torture. The outraged Levite then dismembers her body 
into 12 parts and sends them out to each of the tribes of Israel, demanding that the tribes assemble to bring justice. Israel assembles to be the instrument of God's fire and brimstone upon this new city of Sodom in their midst. But the tribe of Benjamin protects Gibeah and the abusers and, to and, and, and leading to a civil war between Israel and all of Benjamin and the tribe of Benjamin. In that civil war, Benjamin is defeated. And to preserve the tribe, women are taken from what town? Jabesh Gilead and are taken to preserve the existence of the tribe of Benjamin. These horrific events close out the book of Judges, and we are only given the final analysis. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But notice how 1 Samuel 7, we see Saul's victory is presented as God's redemptive reversal of those depraved events. The town of Gilead, where those awful events occurred, the Sodom in the midst in Israel, this is now the town by which God has provided Israel's first king. And while Benjamin had divided Israel by protecting the abusers and instigating a civil war, now it is a man of Benjamin who unites Israel to fight as one man. And the chopping of the concubine and judges sent out a message to all of Israel of Israel's depravity and wickedness and sin and disunity. But Saul chops up the ox as an expression of God's righteous rage against the serpent of the Ammonites and achieves the unity of all Israel. Now that Israel has a king, the dark days of the judges are over. And Saul is presented as that super judge. In the passage, he is a new Samson upon whom the spirit of the Lord rushes upon in strength. He's also presented in the text as a new Gideon, indicated by the use of the number three. There are 300,000 men of Israel who gather along with 30,000 from Judah. And as he's making his attack against the Ammonites, what does he do? He divides the army into three companies, similar to how Gideon takes his 300 men and divides them into three companies against Midian. The, the, the people of Jabesh were hoping that the Lord, that, that, that some, somebody would come and help them. And the people of Jabesh got word that their deliverance was coming. The, the Lord had answered their desperate cry for help in a way they didn't even think to ask. All of Israel united together coming to their rescue. And so the Lord uses Saul to deliver the people of Jabesh Gilead from the tyranny of the Ammonites. And notice once again, God's graciousness in our passage here. The Lord redeemed Israel's sinful choice of demanding a king like all the nations. And he used that king to be the instrument of his deliverance. Though this is the high point of Saul's kingship, as we know, the battle belongs to the Lord. Let's keep reading in the text in verse 12. Then the people said to Samuel, who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in that we may put them to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced 
greatly. Saul had brought the nation together. And any doubts of his kingship now are dissolved after his great victory over the Ammonites. And because the victory was so great, some of the people suggested that, well, Saul, you ought to just put to death all those worthless men that doubted you. Even though it seemed like everybody was doubting Saul at the time. But Saul exercises forgiveness and restraint. Now was not the time for vindictiveness. Now was the time for celebration. Because Saul, to his credit, rightly recognized that it was the Lord who had worked salvation in Israel. Here is Saul raising up his own Ebenezer, if you will. Saul might have led the charge, but it was the Lord who won the victory. Every victory comes from the Lord, doesn't it? We may not face an Ammonite enemy that scoops out our eyeballs, but but we face a fiercer enemy even than that called sin that oppresses us, that enslaves us, that drags us to hell. And God brings his deliverance through a deliverer, his anointed king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Jesus goes to the cross, he wages war against sin and death, and he liberates all who trust in him. And on the third day, Christ rose again, triumphantly in victory and power over the grave. Church, the gospel's clear. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the message of salvation, the message of your own victory in Christ may have come to you through his spirit-filled people called the church. Maybe it was a parent who shared the gospel with you. Maybe it was a teacher. Maybe it was a friend. Maybe it was a pastor. But such people are simply the means, the instruments of the Lord's salvation. It is the Lord who works salvation. It is the Lord who brings the gospel and changes our hearts and causes us to be born again. He is the one who has the victory over our sin and over our death. And as we respond to the gospel with repentance and faith, it is the Lord who wins the battle of our depraved and wicked hearts. After the victory... Samuel urges everyone to go to Gilgal to come and renew the kingdom, the text says. Renew the kingdom. Gilgal was a fitting place to do such a thing for a kingdom renewal time. Gilgal was Israel's first encampment after the crossing of the Jordan River under the leadership of Joshua. It became a remembrance of God's covenantal faithfulness in bringing his people into the land of promise. Gilead, uh, Gilgal means rolled, and it gets its name from Joshua chapter 5, verse 9, where the Lord says, Today I have rolled away the reproach or the disgrace of Egypt from you. Israel goes to Gilgal to renew the kingdom because just as the Lord had rolled away the disgrace of Egypt there, so now God has rolled away the attempted disgrace of Nahash and the Ammonites. But whose kingdom is being renewed at Gilgal? Saul's or Yahweh's? Well, the answer is sort of both, but ultimately this is the renewal of God's kingdom. Saul's kingship has been established, but not recognized by Israel up until this point. After this victory, the nation formally inaugurates Saul's kingdom. But the text says in verse 15, they, there they made Saul king. But the next phrase is also really important to recognize what's happening here at this kingdom renewal. Look at what it says. They made Saul king before the Lord 
in Gilgal. Israel's initial request for a king was sinful because they wanted to replace the Lord with a human king. But, but though Israel has a human king, we see that God's kingdom is renewed as the monarchy is put in place before the Lord. Saul's kingship is established here at this renewal underneath the authority of Yahweh as Israel's covenantal king. So though Israel had sinned in an egregious, sinful sort of way, the Lord is gracious to continue to be the king over his people. The monarchy now established through Saul was an extension of Yahweh's kingship. And though Israel rebelled against the Lord, here we see God renews the kingdom again in Israel. Peace offerings are made to the Lord. They worship the Lord. And Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Now the next chapter, chapter 12, most likely happened at a different time. But it further clarifies the renewal of God's kingdom and how the monarchy is now to function within the theocracy of Israel. Samuel will give his final address here in chapter 12 as the judge of Israel. And though he will still be around, functioning as a prophet, in fact, he has another king to anoint. We'll get to that later on in the book. So he still has a role to play, but this is his retirement speech from political leadership over Israel at this point. The, the reins are being passed to the king, to Saul. And so in his address, we see that Samuel speaks like a prosecutor before a courtroom. First, he puts himself under trial, under the scrutiny of examination. Second, Samuel then puts the Lord under examination and examines the, the Lord's actions. And then thirdly, the case culminates as he considers Israel and he puts them under examination. The speech has this ramping rhetorical force to it, as I hope you'll see, as Samuel's faithfulness of the leader, as the leader is proven beyond all doubt, as the Lord's faithfulness is certainly proven beyond all doubt, and all of that contrasted with Israel's unfaithfulness. Let, let's, let's start reading at the start of the chapter. And Samuel said to all Israel, behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you. And I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. So even though Samuel ruled Israel as God's judge, he followed the will of the Lord and gave Israel the king that they requested. The people now have what they want. Samuel, as he says here in the text, he's old and gray. His corrupt sons are with Israel. Those were their two key concerns that prompted the request for a king in the first place, Samuel's age and his sons. But Samuel challenges the nation to raise a charge against him. He had walked in public life before Israel since his childhood, when the Lord first called him as a prophet. And so Samuel invites the challenge. 
Did I lead in any way like the house of Eli? Did I oppress anyone? Did I steal from anyone? Did I bribe anyone? And the universal response from the people is in the negative. You have not defrauded us. You have not oppressed us. You have not taken anything from us. And so Samuel puts himself on trial publicly before all the people, and he's verified by the people as a faithful leader. There's no evidence towards Samuel's unfaithfulness. Paul's instructions to Timothy tells us that leaders are to hold the faith and have a good conscience. A good conscience. Though Samuel is not a perfect leader, setting his two sons in leadership positions probably wasn't the wisest idea but he had nonetheless walked before Israel with integrity and righteousness for all his decades. And as he comes to the end of his rule over Israel, he's able to do so with a clean conscience before God and the people. And he comes to the end of his rule, he's got this clean conscience. When when leaders shipwreck their faith, it comes from a marred conscience, so scarred by hidden moral failure that their conscience becomes numb. Samuel, not in arrogance, but in the godly confidence that comes from a good conscience, can say to Israel, I have done you no wrong. Your rejection of me as judge has nothing to do with my integrity or my character. You are a leader in Christ's church. Could you stand before us today and do the same with a good conscience before God? As a Christian, can you stand before us and ultimately before the Lord with a good conscience? With the matter of Samuel's faithfulness settled, the trial then turns to examine the Lord. Let's keep reading verse six. And Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord, their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor and in the hand of the Philistines and into the hands of the king of Moab. And they fought against them and they cried out to the Lord and said, we have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side and you lived in safety. So, so Samuel now pleads the Lord's case before Israel. Samuel's been under trial, faithful. The Lord is now under trial. And we see that the Lord has historically always been the gracious God who raises up a leader to deliver his people. He appointed Moses, he appointed Aaron to bring the people out of the land of Egypt, out of the oppression of the Egyptians into the land of promise. But then the evidence goes on. Then they went into the land and what happened? Israel forgot the Lord. They forgot the Lord. And because of their idolatry, the Lord disciplines his children as a loving father does by bringing them into the hand of their foreign enemies. And so the cycle recurs. 
all throughout the book of Judges and continued up into Samuel's time as the last judge. And what's the cycle? The people would cry out. The Lord would hear the cries of his people. He would raise up a leader to deliver them. Samuel mentions just a few key judges in the text. Jerubbabal, aka Gideon, as he's better known, Barak, Jephthah, and himself, all are in this line of God's faithful deliverers that he has raised. And Samuel's point, as he puts the Lord on trial here, is to show the people beyond all doubt that the Lord has always been faithful. He's always been faithful. He's never been unfaithful. He always responds to his people's repentance by coming to their rescue over and over and over again. And when they turned away from idols and back to him, the Lord always raised up a judge to come and help. That's been the pattern going all the way back since Moses, when the Lord first raised up Moses and Aaron to deliver the people. But now the cycle has been ruptured, not by Israel's yet again repeated unfaithfulness, but by their treason against God. Instead of calling out for the Lord this time, they insisted, they demanded a king to replace the Lord. Here we get some additional information that has been concealed to us up until this point about what prompted the request for a king in the first place. Look at verse 12. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God was your king, and now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. As we begin to find out here, the last few chapters have had some chronological overlap to them. Nahash and the Ammonites were the growing threat that, that spurred and helped prompt the request for a king back in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And so rather than turning to the Lord and repenting of their idols, as they did under Samuel's leadership in 1 Samuel 7, the people do the opposite. They reject the Lord completely and they demand a king in his place, a king to save them. The cycles has been broken by Israel's treason. They wanted out of this whole covenant with Sinai thing, the covenant with the Lord. We don't want that anymore. Lord, give us a king. And Samuel makes this point so strongly in the text, doesn't he? He says, they requested a king when the Lord your God was your king. Their request for a king is an act of treason. And the weight of Samuel's case for God's faithfulness is proved beyond all doubt that Israel's choice was foolish. Indeed, not just foolish, but wicked and evil. And now they have their king. You had the king you asked for. The people of Israel now are given a choice. Will they place the requested monarchy beneath the kingship of the Lord, thereby continuing the covenant at Sinai? Or will they reject the Lord? Will they tear out the covenant agreement? And will they face God's judgment? Let's read in verse 14. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Israel's future is now hitched, tethered, forever to their king. 
If both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord, Israel is going to go well. The covenant continues. The blessings of the covenant will come. I will be your God and you will be my people. We'll continue on. But now we see that the national security and the spiritual blessings of God's people will now rise and fall with the faithfulness of their king. But the warning grows in intensity and in severity in verse 15. The ESV actually softens the original language here a little bit. A a literal translation reads, the hand of the Lord will be against you and your fathers. It's a severe judgment that the Lord is threatening to bring upon Israel. That if Israel rejects the Lord, the Lord will comprehensively reject Israel as a whole, past, present, and future. They must either operate the monarchy subservient to the Lord's rule under the covenant, or yet they will face the hand of the Lord's judgment. To signify the severity of God's warning, the Lord brings a sign, a demonstration of his power and sovereignty to show the people. And we're reminded here that the Lord is not just a God who speaks, though he does. He is a God who backs up his words with actions. Let's read in verse 16. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord and asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. First reading, you might not think this is such a big deal. It's a thunderstorm. But such a storm was unheard of in that time of year. Notice what Samuel says. Is it not wheat harvest today? The Lord sends this powerful thunderstorm in the middle of the dry season of Israel, sometime between May and June. Such a storm during that time of year would be as unusual as seeing six feet of snowfall at the outer banks during a 4th of July weekend. Just unheard of, unseen. And the rain soaked Israel that day with the booming thunder of divine fury clashing all around them. And as they witnessed the sign, the conviction of the Lord struck their hearts. Terror and desperation filled their hearts as they recognized their sin. And the people call out to Samuel. Look at verse 19. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord, your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. So Israel goes to Samuel. They say, Samuel, please, please pray for us. Now that we, now we know, now we have recognized by your words, the words from the Lord in this sign that we have sinned against the Lord. The weight of Samuel's courtroom case has come to a close. And what's the verdict? Samuel, faithful. The Lord, faithful. Israel condemned. They committed evil before the Lord. And the sign of that storm impressed the judgment of God that they understood they rightly deserved. And before the courtroom of God ourselves, we will find ourselves under the thunderous judgment of God's wrath. All of us are sinners. All of us are condemned. And when the case is laid clearly before the Lord's courtroom, we will all be found 
guilty. There is no one righteous. No, not one. And the wages of such a verdict is death. So what does Israel do? What does Israel do? It's the same thing we must do. We must plead to an intercessor. They go to Samuel and they say, Samuel, please, please, under the judgment, under the death that we deserve, intercede for us. Pray to God on behalf of us. And what does the Lord do? What does the Lord say to those who are trembling under the terror of divine judgment? Maybe that's you today. Maybe you recognize your sin. You see the way you've rebelled against the Lord. You see the countless ways you've set up your own kings in your life in rebellion against him and the cosmic treason that you've committed before the Lord. And you're trembling in your boots. You're quaking before the fury of divine judgment that awaits every one of us in our sin. What does the Lord say? Let's keep reading. Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people. For his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Do not be afraid. What powerful words of divine comfort for those trembling in their sin. The Lord will withhold By his grace, the judgment Israel deserves. And he restores them yet again in repentance. He warns them, don't turn aside, Israel, to empty things, things that cannot profit, things that cannot deliver. Samuel urges the people to do what Jesus would later say. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Church, don't focus on empty things. Don't focus on worthless things, things that have no eternal value and things that cannot save you, cannot deliver you, and cannot help you. Do not rest in your political power. Do not rest in your military might. Do not rest in the strength of your body or the balance of your bank account, for they are empty. Only the Lord can deliver us. So therefore, we seek first his kingdom, which means we seek God's king. Even though Israel had sinful motives in requesting a king, the Lord was gracious. And here we see the Lord brings the monarchy underneath his covenant promises at Sinai. And though the Lord threatens to undo the covenant of Sinai as a way of sovereignly stirring his people to repentance, the Lord tells us that he'll never do that. He will not forsake his people. What a, what a precious promise for God's people in verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people. Why? For his great namesake. Why? Because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. And so Samuel says, Israel, don't worry. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to intercede for you. And even though Samuel will no longer be Israel's judge, he's going to keep praying, keep interceding. Praise God, we have an intercessor who keeps doing the same. And he will keep 
teaching them God's words. He's going to keep bringing God's word to the people and to the king. The duty of governance is now passed from Saul to, uh, from Samuel to Saul. But Samuel will continue to function as this priest-like prophet. And what a blessing it is to be among God's people to know that the Lord will not forsake us. He'll never forsake us. In Christ Jesus, the Lord is pleased to make us a people for himself. Jesus is the spirit-filled king who in divine power vanquishes our enemies, delivering us from the sin that threatens to gouge out our eyes and place us under the shackles of the kingdom of darkness. Jesus delivers us from it all. And Jesus is the faithful high priest who goes before and intercedes for us constantly as he sits at the right hand of the father. Jesus is the advocate we need, the lawyer we need, defending our case, pleading our cause before the, the courtroom of heavenly justice. Christ Jesus, the righteous, is on our side. And Jesus is that prophet who teaches us from the words of the Lord and instructs us and enables us to fear the Lord and serve him rightly with all our hearts. Israel's future depends on the faithfulness of her king. If Israel continues in wickedness and their king disobeys the Lord's commandments, they will be swept away along with their king. But every king of Israel will fail in some way. The monarchy established here will eventually be swept away into a Babylonian exile. But the Lord is faithful to send his king, his anointed, his Christ to lead us in righteousness. In Jesus, we have a prophet, we have a priest, we have a king who can deliver us out of sin, who restores us yet again through repentance, who secures us in his salvation and who blesses us forevermore. Perhaps like Israel this morning, you feel the divine terror of the thunder. You feel as if your sin is too great, that you have failed too much, that you are too guilty. You have rebelled against the God too severely this time. Friend, hear the good news of the gospel. God is faithful when we are faithless. No matter your sin, go to Jesus. Yes, you are right. Your sin warrants God's judgment and wrath and condemnation. And your condemnation before God is far more intense than any thunderstorm could ever illustrate to you. But Jesus takes the punishment for his people on his own shoulders. He bears the weight of our sin and he brings us God's forgiveness. So I plead, turn from your sins. And put your faith in Jesus for your everlasting joy. And know that if you're in Christ, that no matter your sin, no matter your failings, the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come, we ask for your help. You are the king. You are the one who has conquered sin and death. You are the king who rose again victoriously on the third day. But Lord, yet we find ourselves like Israel so quickly rebelling against you, setting for ourselves other kings in our hearts to serve and to worship. Lord, how quickly we are to make a covenant, a, a treaty, an agreement with the Ammonites. 
Lord, we pray that you would help us to see the wickedness and the errors of our ways. And Lord, we are grateful that you have come to rescue us even though we haven't called out to you. Or that you sent a savior, a king, the Lord Jesus Christ, our advocate. Lord, we pray that you would help us to set all of our hearts' affections and longings and upon him. Help us to not look at worthless, empty things, but to set our attention, our focus on Jesus. Lord, we do pray, Lord, for those in this room who are not Christian, who, who aren't citizens of Jesus' kingdom. I pray that today, Lord, you would convict them of their sin, or that you would lead them to repentance and that they would put their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and so become one of your own. Lord, we are grateful for the gospel. And we pray that you would work in the hearts of those who don't know you this morning and draw them unto yourself. And Lord, I do pray for those who are in Christ, or that even though they might be in a season of waywardness and rebellion, that they would not hesitate, turn from their sins and run to Jesus afresh, knowing that he is a savior who welcomes us and restores us yet again in his forgiveness and grace. Lord, work, work in this time according to your spirit's leading. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.